Welcome to the Sex Positive Podcast. I am your host, Carrie Ann Hanoski, social worker and sexual educator. Today we're going to be spending some time talking about consent, specifically sexual consent, and how do we go about attaining permission from another person to engage in a sexual act. So it might sound very simple in terms of agreeing to an act, um, but you're going to see today that it's a little bit more than a question of yes or no. Um, Definitely a lot of layers to this and definitely some intersections in terms of patriarchy, racism, ableism, language. So stay tuned and we're going to unpack that a little bit today. So just as a reminder, again, there's a trigger warning to this podcast. If you are somebody who is a sexual assault survivor and you need to take a break, please do so. Hit the pause button, go for a walk, take care of you, and return when you're ready. So what is consent? Consent is essentially permission. It's giving another person an agreement And it needs to be voluntary that you agree to a specific act or behavior. And with sex, this is a really important concept, especially with sex positivity, because the person you're engaging in sexual acts with needs to be able to consent and give you permission for every single act that you may be interested in participating Now, while that might seem like a really simple concept and it might just seem like a yes or no type of answer, not quite, because there are legal implications to providing explicit consent, because without it, it does become a crime. It does become a very complicated issue of did the person actually consent to having sex? So, Things like the age of the person, if they're fully conscious, fully aware of what they're agreeing to, but there has to be this expressed mention through either words or actions that they would want to engage in an activity. They have to give consent to every single act performed because if this does go to court, someone is charged, you have to actually be able to show there was explicit consent. So there's a lot of a lot to unpack here, um, but I do want to spend some time really looking at how do you go about asking for consent? How do you ask for permission? And language has a lot to do with this. So if someone is interested, yes, you can explicitly ask. You can just directly say, do you want to have sex with me? What would that look like? please let me know what your needs are. But the truth is there's a lot of stigma that's still attached to sexual negotiation. So there's lots of research behind, mostly men look for nonverbal types of cues and they base their behavior off of those nonverbal cues. Well, you can see how that starts to unravel a little bit if you don't have an explicit yes. And that's really what I want to talk about today is really learning how to get 
willing, certain, comfortable, sober, informed, respected consent from your partner. It should not be pressured or confused or scared. You should not be under the influence of anything if you're either drunk or high, you know, feeling disrespected in any sort of way or ignored. It's, it's not a coerced type of yes. There's no deception or deceit. It's a very important thing to just have an enthusiastic, yes, I would like to participate. And knowing your partner may decide at any point in time, I withdraw my permission and my consent. And I think it's really important to remember that the absence of no doesn't mean yes. It's really important to know we have a lot of nonverbal cues like avoiding eye contact, silence, crying, pushing someone away, shaking your head no, being unresponsive. Those are all cues that should indicate stop. You can change your mind at any point in time and consent to one activity does not mean consent to another activity. So it's very important, when in doubt, ask active seeking consent and permission. And repeatedly checking in, is this okay? More or stop? Green, yellow, red. Come up with your own system of communication. But the repeated checking in is very important because that's what caring for someone looks like. And I think sometimes, too, that we forget that sexual assault is any unwanted sexual act that is imposed or is without consent. So asking for it or owing the person or I bought you dinner so you owe me this, all of those are forms of sexual assault, which is why I think that we really need to look at some of the overarching layers as to why this happens. If it seems like such a simple question to ask, why aren't more people asking it? And when we talk about sexual assault, quite often we have sort of this image of it's people who are newly dating each other or it's a stranger or someone you've just met But statistically, it's usually somebody that you know. And one of the biggest challenges with any sort of sexual assault is people reporting it, number one. But the other piece is, if it does go to court, how do you show explicit consent within a long-term relationship? How do you show within a marriage that there is abuse that is happening Because I think there's a huge systemic layer there where you have this contractual obligation that, you know, as a partner, you have a duty to be sexually intimate with your partner. And that is just not the case. It's something that needs to be openly expressed every single time, no matter how long you've been with a partner. But it is probably one of the bigger challenges of sexual assault is we have, yes, legal obligations, but I think most people don't report it because there would never be a conviction anyway. Most of the clients that I have worked with over the years, 
the person was not charged. They never went to court. They never was even talked about. So to me, this is one of the reasons why prevention is such an important part of just culturally changing. How do we view sex in the first place, especially from a sex positive lens? So when it does come to sexual consent, only verbal consent actually counts. And it's a really important part if you are in any BDSM community, if you communicate non-verbally, if you're a person with a disability or a cognitive impairment. There's definitely some implications with this court ruling where it's an actual explicit consensual yes rather than yeah, I'm just going to nod my head and think that that means, yes, you want to participate. Body language is not enough. It It's interpreting those cues, and that can be risky. Because I do feel, if you look at the research, um, women do wait to be asked rather than initiating. I know I have a lot of clients who do complain <laughs> to me about that, and they're not really quite sure why. But I think there's this very big social layer where women are told, no, the male will just know what to do. And I mean, the data shows that, that men tend to use nonverbal cues to determine consent. So I think one of the really important questions then, maybe instead of waiting to see what the other person is going to say, may also be, how about we look at what they're actually doing? How is the other person participating actively and are they responsive in any sort of way or are they just quiet? Are they not engaging in the same sort of way? Because that to me would communicate no. One of the really important parts of being sex positive is the verbal negotiation. And if you are somebody who is within especially a polyamory community, there's a lot of conversations that do tend to happen about what is a boundary, what's okay, what are you interested in, asking for what you want. But there's always these follow-up questions of what you would like to do, what you're interested in, sharing what you're interested in, but also seeking clarification throughout. It's an ongoing sort of dance of, do you want to proceed? Do you want to try this? and waiting for the other person to give you that enthusiastic yes. Because really, non-verbal types of communication, people have different understandings of gestures. They have different, different ways of understanding that communication. So it leads to a lot of ambiguity and misunderstandings. So why is this important? It really highlights that a consent violation can, yes, ruin someone's day. It also can bring long-term harm to their well-being. Trauma affects the nervous system on a cellular level. It does change in response to any sort of safety violation. And being touched is one of those very core value systems that then primes our nervous system for hypervigilance. And there's a lot of social layers in that, that we are 
pretty much primed to pick a partner in some sort of way for the lifespan. But when you have sexual trauma, how do you even go about doing that? Things like being sexually open, negotiating your needs, being interested in being sexual, um, but even things like being hugged, being touched, being being a parent. I, I do think that there's a lot of layers to why this is of utmost importance. Because at the end of the day, you have to care what people want and you have to listen to what they have to say. So I think it's really important to be able to sit with that for a little bit. Because how can we create consent culture when the very fabric of how society is shaped is based off of white supremacy and ideas of power and control and oppression. I think that if we're actually going to unravel consent culture in a sex positive manner, we also have to look at forms of systemic oppression like racism, sexism, ableism. So one of the biggest intersections, I think, in unpacking consent culture through a sex-positive lens is really systemic racism. We can't talk about breaking apart why consent culture is such a hot topic if we don't also look at racism. Because systemic racism on all levels is essentially a boundary violation but especially a boundary violation of the person. And I always think of, for example, touching someone's hair that is a person of color and imposing your desire to touch their hair without asking permission. There's an entitlement there to want to touch that person's hair, but you're not respecting space. So white supremacy is really what colonization was founded on. So... It's a really important thing to be able to unpack that, that you have to care what people want because being able to tell is not the problem. The intersection here is believing that the other person's experience and well-being are important enough to pay attention to and that those cues and that the person is being honest with what they mean In a lot of ways, I think the intersection of racism and consent really looks at forcing ourselves to confront being selfish in sexual situations and approaching it with a lot more care and compassion. And that's really something that you have to work at because it's building empathy for another person. The second thing is when we confront when we didn't receive consent, maybe in the past, it feels really bad. And it's, I think, a lot of human response to be in denial, to be defensive, to avoid, to minimize, to gaslight and say, you know, that didn't happen. There's a lot of layers there in terms of the way that we treat people of color 
So just a bit of history behind consent culture and how recent this concept actually is. It really wasn't until the 1980s that there was actually a push for a more communicative model, making it much more explicit and clear, more objective. Um, really was around the time that the no means no and yes means yes slogans all started to come out. But before that, it really wasn't even a part of the sex education curriculum. There was no discussion about negotiating sexual needs or asking directly what you were interested in. Again, like this is where some of the stigma definitely comes forward that you don't talk about negotiating your sexual needs, especially as a woman. Like, why would you do that? The male is going to know everything that you need to know. It just, there's a lot of very risky themes in that where you're not giving empowerment for people to have their own autonomy over their own sexual lives. And it really wasn't until 1999 when the Supreme Court actually had their unanimous ruling that consent must be explicit rather than implied. That's really not that long ago. So age of consent to sexual activity. So this comes from the Canadian government website. This is the legal implications of consent to sexual activity. So the age at which age of consent is for a young person and the age at which they can legally agree to sexual activity. In Canada, the age of consent is 16 years. So in some cases, the age of consent is higher. For example, when there's a relationship of trust, authority, or dependency. But other words, the person must be at least 16 years of age to legally agree to a sexual activity. Now there are some addendums to that though, um, in that there may be close in age types of exceptions. So a 14 year old or 15 year old could consent to sexual activity as long as the partner is less than five years older and there is no relationship of trust, authority, or dependence, or any other exploitation of that young person. So that means if the partner is five years older than the 14 or 15-year-old, any sexual activity would be a criminal offense. There's also a close-in-age exception for 12 and 13-year-olds. So a 12 or 13 year old can consent to a sexual activity with a partner as long as that partner is less than two years older and there is no relationship of trust, authority or dependence or any exploitation of the young person. So what that means is if the partner is two years or older than the 12 or 13 year old, any sexual activity would be considered a criminal offense. In terms of sexual exploitation, 16 or 17 cannot consent to sexual activity if their partner is in a position of trust or authority towards them, so something like a teacher or a coach, if the young person is dependent on their sexual partner for care or support, or the relationship of the young person and their sexual partner is exploitative. The following factors must be taken into account when determining a relationship is exploitative of a young person. So the young person's age, 
the age difference between the young person and their partner, how the relationship developed, for example, if it was quickly developed, secretly, or over the internet, and whether the partner may have controlled or influenced the young person. So these help the Criminal Code of Canada put together what is considered exploitation and what is considered sexual abuse and what is a sexual offense. So for example, it protects everyone, including children, against sexual assault, sexual assault with a weapon, aggravated assault, voyeurism, trafficking in persons, and non-consensual distribution of intimate images. So I just want to make a bit of a side note here to anyone in the BDSM community, subdom community, kink fetish play. These are all forms of consensual sex and sex play. There is lots of consensual types of conversations that happen way before any sort of physical act. And most community members do have some sort of ongoing engagement where they do check in, they do ask, how are you doing? Do you want to continue? Um, safe words do become a big part of ways to share consent throughout any sort of sexual act. So I just want to make a note when we talk about sex positivity, it, it is consent culture in ongoing negotiation with what you're interested in, but that also does extend to any sort of fantasy or sex play, especially if it does involve any bondage, domination, or sadomasochist types of sexual acts. There is still consent within that community. In addition to that, I will also extend that to polyamory you need to have some sort of ongoing consensual agreement that you have permission and that permission can be withdrawn at any point in time. I have a lot of couples who connect with me and talk about opening up their relationships and they're not really quite sure how to go about doing that. So there are many, many, many conversations that happen to ask, do you have my permission? Is this something that you want to do? Um, couples who are interested in, maybe it's not a polyamorous relationship, maybe it's a negotiation of a threesome or a quad or, you know, there's always an ongoing element of is this okay? Do I have your permission? Where is that boundary line? And listening and respecting where that person says that their line is. So here's your call to action. Asking first time, every time, writing a sexy script with your partner. There will be some more ideas in the next podcast on how to go about doing that. So please come back for that. But making consent sexy and asking for permission. So something like, you know, I love when you give me permission to do X, Y, and Z to you. Um, try to incorporate that within the dialogue rather than waiting for the other person, trying to figure out a nonverbal cue until you get that enthusiastic yes, it still might be a no.
So for the individuals in the crowd who are parents who are listening to this podcast and wondering about how do I teach my child about consent, I have a few exercises to share with you today. But the first piece I will just say is you're teaching boundaries, you're teaching body autonomy, you're teaching language and communication, and that is an ongoing process. So in terms of age-appropriate types of conversations to have, I think with consent it really is early on starting with body autonomy and something called the boundary bubble. And the boundary bubble is sort of a concept I've created to explain that there is sort of this bubble around you and you get to decide who you want to let into that bubble. They have to actually ask for your permission. And with kids, they're very visual. So having them put their arms out as far as that they can reach, that is where their boundary bubble begins. So anybody who gets any closer than that, you get to decide, do you want anybody closer? And they have to ask for permission to come in. And if you say no, then you stay out of the bubble. But as parents, this is a really important concept too, because it's introducing the concept of power dynamics in relationships. And as parents, we have a lot of power. And sometimes I think we forget that when it's our children's body autonomy. And I had mentioned this last time, but things like when you wash them in the bathtub or they have to be wiped after going to the washroom. Like those are things that you can actually ask, do I have your permission? Is that okay? And giving them a voice. Because I think that even though they're small, they still need to have that language affirmed because it's role modeling. It's modeling what a healthy relationship looks like. And that really is the basis of all forms of consent. And another great way to teach kids boundaries is by giving them options for greetings. So probably my favorite is the wave, the fist bump, the high five, the hug. You can add a kiss in there if you want to. They decide what they are comfortable with and it's respecting whatever their decision is. So if they don't want to give you know, grandma, a hug, that's okay. It's respecting that maybe they'll change their mind next time. And it is even verbalizing that and saying, okay, that's not for you today. Maybe we'll try again tomorrow. It's giving them a voice to say, your needs are important. Your body is important. You decide who you let into that boundary bubble or not. And your other call to action this week is to find a lovely YouTube video called Tea and Consent. It goes through lots of situations where you can make tea and you may decide you change your mind. Or if you fall asleep, you don't have to drink that tea. You're not mad at a person because you took all that time to make the tea, but then they didn't drink it. And halfway through the tea, maybe they decided they didn't want it anymore. So you don't force them to drink that tea. It's a really great concept because I think it helps you really understand what consent culture actually looks like 
and why it is so important to listen to what the other person has to say. And if they change their mind, that's okay. So a definite call to action would be one, education. Start with young people and spreading the word that this is preventative. Teaching children at a very young age that their body is theirs and they have their own body autonomy as parents, I think is one of the biggest gifts that you can give your child. The second thing is being kind. Being kind and practicing self-compassion that you are still learning. If you didn't grow up with that sort of framework that your body is yours, if you had parents or family members that forced you to hug, you know, your aunt or uncle, or it was imposed that you had to give up your space in some sort of way, that's some work to do. But just know you are still learning and that is more than okay. The third thing I would say is pause when you find yourself thinking in these all or nothing terms. When you get stuck on this idea that this person is one way or another and just seeing it in a very binary type of term, you lose that middle ground. You use the flexibility that we can learn new ways of approaching consent. We can challenge systemic racism when it does happen and commit to doing better. And number four, I would just say, is accepting people's stories. Accepting their stories about their life is really a starting point to caring because that's really what consent is about. It's caring enough to take care of another person and listen. Because consent culture can't exist in a racist culture because racism in and of itself is a consent violation. So I will just close today in saying Please ask for consent. Please ask for permission. Start teaching your kids at a very early age that their body is theirs. I think it's the biggest gift that you possibly can give. And if you're still learning that concept, that's okay too. Today is the day to be able to start that and start asking for permission to go into another person's space, whether that is physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually, asking for permission the first time and every time. And if you do enjoy this podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. If you're looking for some more information, you can also follow me on Instagram at life.mend.sexology. As well, you can check out my website at life.mend.sexology psychotherapy.com and today's episode was brought to you by life mend psychotherapy mending lives through healing and empowerment